Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we have the story of a Nobel Prize winner whose love of music might have helped her make a discovery decades before other scientists caught up. Wow, who's the scientist? Her name is Barbara McClintock. Her discovery changed the way we think about genetics, but not too many people know that she also played the jazz banjo. (laughs) I can't wait to see how those things fit together. Maybe you should acknowledge that you have a cold. Okay. If anybody wonders why I sound so funny today, it's because I have a cold. But we're going to march on anyway and introduce our guest, a fellow science podcaster. Yes, so I am Jocelyn Bosley. Jocelyn hosts a podcast called Science with Friends. There's an exclamation point after science. Science! (laughs) With friends! Exactly. (laughs) Jocelyn is also a science historian, and Barbara McClintock is one of her favorite all-time scientists. Well, she really challenged some of the most basic assumptions about genetics. Jocelyn is going to tell the tale of Barbara McClintock's life in science. And we have some special help in doing that from jazz banjoist and host of the podcast, The Past and the Curious. His name's Mick Sullivan. So we got a podcast party going on over here. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning of Barbara's story. So she was born in 1902. So like kind of a long time ago. Yes. And this is a really fun fact about her youth. Barbara was actually named Eleanor at birth, but her parents later changed her name because they thought Eleanor was too feminine and delicate for who she turned out to be. Well, growing up, she would have perhaps been called a tomboy. She said uh, she didn't play with girls much because they didn't play the way that she wanted to play. She liked doing athletic things and being outside. Mm, Yeah, that's not really an Eleanor sort of activity. I think more of a Barbara thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Young Eleanor, then Barbara, had a few brothers and sisters, but she really liked spending time alone reading. She was very much a unique person, I think, from the beginning, and she didn't necessarily like to do things the way that other people did them. And so she really had an active imagination and a world inside her own mind. Barbara discovered her love for science while she was in school. She desperately wanted to go to college, which wasn't too common for girls in those days. While it was an option, it was not really encouraged, and it was actively discouraged a lot of the time. Why? Her parents worried that by sending her to college, they would make it harder for her to find a husband, and she obviously wasn't worried about that. What, so her parents were worried about her getting too smart for marriage? Basically, because when Barbara was young, it was rare for girls to both get married and get educated. But Barbara was determined to choose her own path. When she was going to college, it was early 1920s. Barbara went to Cornell University in upstate New York for botany, or the study of plants. With other learners, she really blossomed. Would you say she sprouted an interest in science? (laughs) She was very social in college. One story that I like was that she briefly joined a sorority, but didn't like the way there were certain people who made it and others who didn't. So instead of joining a group of women, she joined a group of musicians. It was in college that she started playing banjo in a jazz band. So I guess, you know, the 1920s was 
kind of when she was in college, and that was sort of like jazz banjo heyday a little bit. Well, I never heard of jazz banjo at all before this story, but I have to say I've gotten kind of into it. (laughs) (laughs) Our friend Mick Sullivan has played jazz banjo for a decade and recorded this especially for us. Barbara loved the banjo, and she also loved science, and there was one class that completely changed her life, genetics. And really, she never looked back. She just loved it. Genetics is the study of genes and heredity. Today, genetics is used to study everything from evolution and disease to creating new medicines. But back in the 1920s, scientists were just starting to study genes. When Barbara McClintock started out, this was a pretty new science. And the way that genes were thought of at this time, genes being the the unit of heredity, it was thought that each gene coded for, so it contained the information to build one trait. So the idea was basically that, like, you had an eye color gene and a hair color gene or whatever, and somehow these traits just got chosen when parents had a baby? Yeah, and that's what Barbara would have learned at school. And genes were like beads on a string, and you got one string from each parent. So you got one copy of each gene from each parent, and they're arranged on these strings called chromosomes. The chromosome strings were larger, and they held the collection of genes. So chromosomes are like necklaces with many strings. That was the idea. And if you have, you know, a couple of necklaces, you don't usually come in and find that a bead from one necklace has shown up on a different necklace. Yeah, I mean, just randomly, that would be uh, magic. (laughs) But this is what happened. Sometimes genes didn't stay in the same place. They would appear on different chromosomes, like a bead switching necklaces on its own. How would that happen? That's what Barbara wanted to know. So she became a scientist and started looking at these mysterious genes in corn. Corn? Why corn? Corn is great. Because uh, each kernel actually is its own individual. That means each kernel inherits its own separate traits. You're eating this entire population of corn organisms when you eat an ear of corn. That's kind of (laughs) creepy. It wasn't the kind of sweet corn that we eat, but the more colorful, less edible variety. It's the wild type of corn. Mm, So like the corn with all the different colored kernels that you decorate your house with for fall. Yeah, but for Barbara, the colors were just festive, but useful. It meant that she could see how the genes determined the appearance of the corn and the kernels. So how those different genes get turned on or off, how they get activated and how they get expressed is a big question for geneticists. And she really started that line of research. Okay, so she was trying to see how two things tied together, the genes, which are invisible to us, and the traits, which are the effects we can observe. Exactly. So Barbara really threw herself into her work. She didn't have time to play banjo in a band anymore. She was on a path to a big discovery. So what did she discover? She studied corn, and she 
noticed that there were certain genes that seemed to move around, not just during the process of being passed on to offspring, to, to the baby corn. Barbara saw that genes didn't only change when they got passed down from generation to generation. There were certain genes that could change position and actually change traits in the organism. Just in the ordinary course of the corn's life, there were these genes, and she called them transposons, which I think is a very fun word. They're really jumping genes, so they move around. Jumping genes. <laughs> sound like genes that like to have fun. They're a little bit jazzy. In fact, it may have been Barbara's experience playing jazz that helped her make this discovery, Jocelyn thinks. The way she saw the genome was very similar to the way jazz musicians think about music. Because in jazz, there's a structure, there is a set of rules. And within that structure, there's a lot of room for improvising. And so you follow these basic rules, but then you can kind of riff within those rules. play around a little bit within that basic structure. And that is how she ended up seeing the genome um, in the sense that, yes, there are these genes that exist in a certain configuration, sort of like beads on a string. But within that structure, there's also room for this dynamic movement and for a kind of improvisation, if you want to think of it that way. She was accustomed to thinking about and seeing that kind of variation within a basic structure because of her work as a jazz musician. I love that. So Barbara might have discovered jumping genes because the patterns in her science were like the patterns she recognized from music. Exactly. Because here's the thing. When Barbara announced her big discovery of jumping genes... Other scientists just didn't believe her. She was met with a lot of disbelief and hostility because this contradicted people's expectations about what genes were and how they behaved and how they didn't behave. What? Like, people just didn't think that genes could jump? <laughs> Did they know about jumping beans? <laughs> no, they were just like, you're crazy. And <laughs> they ignored her. But Barbara has a famous quote that goes, if you know you are on the right track. If you have this inner knowledge, then nobody can turn you off, no matter what they say. The way she talked about it, um, it wasn't so much that she withdrew or felt rejected. I think she was tired of spending a bunch of time trying to convince people that she was right, because she knew that she was. <laughs> In a way, she had faith that people would figure it out eventually. <laughs> I feel like lots of people think other people will figure out that they're right in the end. <laughs> there is a big difference here between just thinking that you're right and, <laughs> and being a scientist and knowing you're right. Because Barbara didn't just have an opinion about genes. She had a lot of scientific evidence or proof. So did other scientists figure it out? Yes. And they also recognized her work. Forty years after her discovery of jumping genes, Barbara McClintock was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for her discovery. 
when she got her Nobel Prize, she talked about how it seemed almost, you know, unfair to reward somebody for just having so much fun learning from these corn plants. And one of my favorite teachers in elementary school was a corn plant. (laughs) Really had this way of making math fun. (laughs) Well, I think Barbara was just being humble about plants being her teachers. She was a visionary, and she had a unique perspective and way of thinking that it took other people a while to catch up with. And for that reason, she ended up kind of forging ahead on her own. Barbara ended up so far ahead of the other geneticists of her time. But science, just like music, still relies on the work of others. It always sounds better with a band, especially when you're improvising, because then you can sort of uh, pick up on each other's cues, and one person does something, and another person can riff on that, and the whole is always more than the sum of its parts. And so... Her work was like that. I mean, she built on the structure that had been established by the community of geneticists. Barbara had learned from the geneticists who came before her. She built her discoveries on top of their foundation. And she knew that the scientific process would eventually lead others down the path to what she discovered. She herself was a kind of a jumping gene, I guess you could say. She was working within the structure of science, but she wasn't afraid to see things a little bit differently and to bring her own perspective. The jazz music is not just a good analogy or parallel to how she saw the genome, but also how she herself worked and how the whole scientific process and community works at its best. Barbara McClintock died in 1992 at the age of 90. She had founded a new field of genetics. Today, scientists study jumping genes to understand everything from disease to evolution. Wow, so jazz banjo can lead to all of that. (laughs) Maybe not only the banjo, but music might make you more creative in all sorts of unexpected ways. I totally agree. Whether you play music or just love listening, can you think of any ways that music has crossed over into other parts of your life? Does it inspire you to do things or think about things differently? If it has, think about the ways learning about music has changed the way you see things or do things and let us know about it. We always love to hear from you. Today to Jocelyn Bosley, Research Impact Coordinator at the University of Nebraska and co-host of Science with Friends. Jocelyn is an If Then ambassador. If Then seeks to further advance women in science, technology, engineering, and math by empowering current innovators and inspiring the next generation of pioneers. This episode is made possible by an If Then mini-grant. If you want to hear more about Barbara McClintock, listen to our special bonus interview episode available for patrons who pledge $1 or more a month on patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. We'll also have free resources to learn more on our website, including links to Jocelyn's podcast. Claire Glendening is our intern. Sarah Robertson-Lentz made the episode art and is our head of partnerships. Mick Sullivan generously supplied the jazz banjo. He's the host of the wonderful history podcast, The Past and the Curious. We really love his show and encourage you to check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Music engineering help on this episode was from Ben Watson. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this show. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I played all the non-banjo instruments that you heard. 
Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery 